0: This is from the Book of Equanimity, Me Who's Enlightenment or Not, the Introduction, Bodhidharma's Highest Truth, Wu's, Emperor Wu's Confusion, Vimalakirti's Teaching of Non-Duality, Manjushri's Verbal Access. Is there anyone who has the ability to enter inactivity? The main case. Mihu had a monk ask Yangshan, Do people these days need enlightenment or not? Yangshan said, It's not that there is no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? The monk went back and reported this to Mihu, who deeply agreed with this. The verse The secondary, distinguishing enlightenment, breaking up delusion. Quickly, you should free your hands and relinquish net and traps. Accomplishment, before it's exhausted, becomes an extra thumb. Wisdom can hardly know, like you can't bite your own navel. The full moon icy disk weeps in the autumn dew. The birds are cold in the jade tree. The dawn breeze is chill. Brought forth, great young distinguishes real and false. Completely without flaw, the white jade is esteemed. <clears throat> we just chanted from the beginning, all beings are Buddha. Is that what we experience? Is that what our lives verify? Why is it that there is a discrepancy between this line and our lives? Now preparing for this for today's Zazenkai and the opening of our Spring Ango, I was looking through a bunch of koans, some traditional textbooks, looking for something that will fit with Ango in general and specifically with the theme, Sangha. Sangha is one of the three treasures. Sangha in the way it relates to Buddha Dharma. Sangha is one with the three treasures. So I was looking through a bunch of coins and found myself coming back to the fundamental question this coin is raising. What is it that we call enlightenment? Who needs it? Right? Do we need it? One of the significant functions of a sangha is to create a conducive and encouraging environment for practitioners to stay engaged in the process of awakening, as I mentioned this morning. Facing, looking at, witnessing insanity all around. we, We realize Even before we begin practicing, we realize there's something wrong with this picture. There's got to be a better way, right? I, I don't want to keep contributing to this insanity, right? So everything we do, the whole idea of getting together to practice has to do with supporting each other on the path of awakening. And it's significant because it revolves the Dharma and it keeps reminding each of us to turn the attention back to what we call the fundamental nature which already is in perfect harmony with all things. Already is. Otherwise, why would Hakuin begin by saying from the beginning all Buddhas, all beings are Buddhas, everybody, everything, endowed. So to turn back over and over again to that which is already harmonized, Sangha, Dharma, Buddha, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, you can move it in any direction you want. It's one thing. One intention. But unless the unity of these three treasures is realized on a personal level, then they remain trapped as a potential, untapped potential. So we can say that the practice boils down to walking through the gate of realizing unity. And since unity does not exclude the one who is sitting on this cushion today, it means that we have full access to work with the essence of what we're trying to realize. Right? All the time, we have access to what we need to work with, to what we want to realize. Well, to the problem and to the solution. Right? And we call this work of observation Zazen. We sit and we look. And the more you practice, the more you realize why it is so essential to take the time to observe, instead of to keep perpetuate what we claim we want to find ourselves free of. And the more you practice, the more you realize why Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha are treasures. So as a Buddhist Sangha, we speak of not creating home and of learning to lead a life that is of benefit to others and the environment. Right? So we can actually learn to live together at ease, to not create conflicts, not reject one another, not judge. And it sounds really good, right, you know, we get together so we can practice that and We can together achieve some kind of unity, some kind of harmony. But when we sit down and observe, what do we encounter? When we actually stop moving, turn the attention inwardly, what do we see? Restlessness, anger, fear, inner conflicts, self-deprecating thoughts, feelings of rejection, many judgmental thoughts. And overall, we may say an underlying sense of dissatisfaction for different reasons at different times. But then there is something that also is part of that unity, we are united by a deep sense of dissatisfaction. And you know there are different ways, different. which of those you encounter personally, how often they appear, is not so relevant because we're not here to compare, although some do, vocally. But we have to be utterly honest about the fact that we all do encounter such thoughts and emotions. And then acknowledge two very important factors, since we do encounter that, since we are honest about that. The first one, these underlying thoughts and emotions, some of which I'm aware of, some of which I'm not, have a profound impact on my state of being, which of course has profound impact on where I'm at, who I'm talking with, what I'm doing inseparable. And secondly, my state of being has profound impact on whether my words and actions cause harm or do good. My state of being. And again, we have full access to the problem and to the solution. There's no blame. It's just we see how we perpetuate. So when we speak about looking at the madness of the world, the insanity of the world, and we, don't under- we look at it, like, how can somebody do such a thing? How could the hatred be so strong and so blinding that somebody will take a gun and shoot 50 people. But you know, when you look, when we look deep down, we actually see yeah, it's possible. Well, obviously it's possible. Well, we can say the mental ill, but it's not that kind of illness actually. It's a different kind of sickness. It's a sickness that as you remember from Vimalakirti Sutra, it's a sickness that we all share. And the degree to which it manifests is not so relevant as the fact that it does manifest. You know, we try to run away from it, right? But the whole point of sitting down in Zazen and looking is to not run away, to realize and admit I am feeling this. There is restlessness in me. There are strong emotions. And I know that those emotions, unobserved, will inevitably cause harm. It's just how it works. An unobserved, agitated mind creates restless and Restless world. And the restless world keeps the mind in a state of agitation. We created all this great technology. But that great technology actually keeps us running around like a chicken without a head. Maybe we created it so we don't actually have to stop being agitated. So we can keep feeding the agitation unconsciously, subconsciously. But it does feed the agitation. And I think one of the problems, I I was thinking about the great iPhone, right? Which, yeah, I have. (laughs) I use. One of the problems with these devices is that they're amazing, right? They're so good. You don't want to put it down. You don't wanna put it down because of the format of the thing and also what we see through that. But what is it in us that craves what we end up creating? And more importantly, is it really beneficial? Does it do good? Do we do good with it? Because obviously the problem is not in the thing. right? The problem is in how we interact with the thing. But if we interact with the thing in a way that perpetuates what created it in the first place, agitation you may say can also be beneficial because we can we create some amazing things as human beings double edged soul sometimes to our detriment actually often to our detriment so that's where we that's when we keep the finger on the pulse examine not so much what but how am i in touch with a deep seated state or sense of dissatisfaction. And that turns the wheel of samsara. So we are here together as a sangha to turn the dharma wheel. And when we take the time to observe, we realize, recognize what turns the wheel of samsara. It's clear, isn't it? Not the mess, but at least uh, the work we want to do together. You know, so when we take the time to observe, to sit and look at how the mind operates, you know, we learn, learn to silently, silently witness thoughts and emotions as they come and go we actually begin to recognize that there is another way to be. Our view becomes more expansive. Maybe it becomes easier to not follow thoughts and emotions. And doing good actually becomes more available, more natural. To do good. You know, we we want to do good, it's just that there is something that does not want us to do, or wants us to do something else. I think I mentioned was a, a while ago this, uh, we had a seven-year-old in the kids' program. She told her mother that, uh, and she's, you know, a bit of a, she's difficult at times, put it that way, on the mat, and everyday life and she told her mom that she really wants to be good it's just that there there is something in her that wants her to do bad things it's a very honest statement from a child but that's what it is, there is something in us that wants us to act in a different way so to see that, not to reject it but to see that is step one just to see to, to flip the switch and to see they're all different streams, forces, elements that I experience. And then well, maybe I don't have to follow that. Maybe I can follow something else. You know, what we do is we're we upside down, right? And what we do is we have to flip it from being upside down to being right side up. we're so used to being upside down that we actually think we're right side up. So as the eyes open, we actually become more aware of how easy it is for us to cause harm and how difficult it is to actualize goodness. It's easy to cause harm without practice, without attention, without some level of awareness. But then as our awareness grows, it flips. It becomes more difficult to engage in harmful words and actions. And easier to be in the world as a force of goodness. Easier, more natural to be in the world as a force of goodness. There's a huge difference between functioning with the eyes open and functioning with the eyes closed. Lots of unnecessary suffering can be avoided when we see clearly. So there's no doubt it's obvious that we need to awaken and the sooner the better. But if it's so obvious why would Mihu send a monk to ask Yangshan? Do people these days need enlightenment or not? And the footnote says Have they ever been deluded? Which is what Hakuin is saying, right? From the beginning, all beings are Buddha. Here is the, the footnote as a question, and here is the answer. By Haqueen. Right? So the footnote is pointing the, the assumption that gives rise to the harmful and destructive behavior. Actually what it does try to do is it attempts to shake us up from that. To shake up the assumption. To shake up what we trust, what we believe. Or what we believe is true, or what we believe is not true. It's trying to help us see what most are not seeing. Now, we think, right? We think, therefore, we are. We think we are not enlightened. In fact, we are convinced we are not enlightened. And therefore, we, we act in an unenlightened way. That is verified by the world. Obviously, we don't act in an enlightened way as society. And, and more importantly, in most cases, we don't even know that that's what we think. So all there is is just the way we act, the way we behave. Which obviously is verifying something. Is verifying what we trust, what we practice, without knowing that we practice it. What we get good at. So first we want to become aware of the fact that we are doing it in a repeated way. So that's one. And then, look beyond that. And again, ask the question, is there another way? So, simply stated, we may say that enlightenment is none other than the recognition that we are not deluded. But on a more profound level, the absence of delusion is also the absence of enlightenment. Again, the absence of delusion is the absence of enlightenment, which leaves us with our day to day existence. And our day to day existence manifests as enlightenment and delusion. That's how it manifests. What do we do with it? How do we work with it? What do we learn from it? Because everything happens right there. In the Awakening of Faith essay attributed to Asvagosha, Asva it says, "Original enlightenment is intrinsic, but non-enlightenment is accidental." We are an accident. The latter is an unactualized state of the same original enlightenment. That is to say, a person is originally enlightened or saved, but suffers because she does not realize it and continues on blindly groping for salvation elsewhere. This is the origin of the agitation. Disconnectedness. Looking around. Maybe I'll find it here. I'll find happiness there. 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 Right? And then it never does actually deliver. Right? Nothing. None of those things can deliver what we want. And because they don't deliver... perpetuate the agitation we become less or more actually unsatisfied it doesn't work and this is what the buddha meant when he said that we are upside down and what's said about is that we create our own suffering because our eyes closed, we don't even know that we do that. We say we want to be content. Yet what we do creates the opposite. And again, we're so used to being upside down that it feels correct. So to realize that something is wrong with the way we function is the first step of spiritual journey. To realize there's got to be a better way. And a couple of days ago I went to Shobuji to, to teach as I do once a month. And then we, after... I gave show, we, we got together, as we do, to wrap it up with some tea and discussion. And somebody asked, asked me what got me on the path of Zen. So I thought about it for a couple of seconds. And I mean, I could have said many things about Zen, but this really wasn't that. What got me to, to see that there's got to be another way is actually living with my parents as a 12-year-old. I just saw how they lived. There's nothing special about the way they lived. They just said they wanted to be content and happy and did a lot of things that caused, created the exact opposite. And somehow I saw that. Somehow I realized I don't want to do this. And I I was talking to my father about actually I talked to him a bunch of times about that and you know, he just said, You will get it when you grow up and we left it at that. It was it was actually great teaching. I would say I learned a lot from them. They were maybe my first teachers as our parents all, right? Teach us. Now, often teaching is not what to do, Is actually, it can be what not to do, how not to behave, what's not conducive. Because if we don't see that, then we grow up to do pretty much the same stuff. We create the same (coughs) problems, same pain for ourselves, for others, So that's probably what got me to, to begin inquiring, which led to some reading, some of philosophy, some ancient cultures, traditions, and later on it became something more anchored in a, a tradition, which is really not so important. What's more important about that is that we have to, at some point, it really doesn't matter when, We have to open our eyes. We have to realize there is something wrong with the way I function, something wrong with the way society functions. For sure. This is what actually uh, reminds me of Hafiz. Some of you know very well. He was trying to point out with the poem that I quoted a bunch of times, but for the sake of our new members, newcomers, I'll quote again, He said, first the fish needs to realize that there is something wrong with this camel ride. And then, why am I so damn thirsty? Why am I so damn thirsty, right? Why is it that it's not just that I'm thirsty, Is anything I drink does not quench that thirst. That's more important, actually, because I try to quench that. Well, we all try, but it doesn't do it. It doesn't work. Somebody said to me, I think I'm not being true to myself or to who I am, who I really am. That's a very good entry point as well. And it's the same. I'm not true to who I am. And I'm not true to who I am means I am following thoughts and emotions that come and go. I'm following and I'm true to what I am not. I trust it. I obey it. But to trust and obey it without knowing is one thing, right? That's a very difficult disease to cure. But then to actually see that I'm trusting that, then it's moving towards curing the disease. The awareness. I wreak havoc wherever I go, whatever I do. The degree to which I wreak havoc doesn't matter. I know I do. I see I am. So I'm true to thoughts and emotions that come and go. When they come, I go for the right. When they leave, I am left exhausted, depleted. No more energy in me. Not only that, but then I have to live live with the consequences, deal with the consequences of what I just did. Non-enlightenment is accidental. As Vagosha says, "But original enlightenment is intrinsic. I trust and follow non-enlightenment, and I turn my back against fundamental, intrinsic. So how to become of the intrinsic? Become aware of the intrinsic. How to allow it? to function freely in our lives, how to learn to trust it. Bankei, a 17th century Japanese Zen master said, he actually focused his entire teaching around realizing the intrinsic, which he referred to as the unborn. He said, instead of struggling to do or to become something, one needs to cease struggling entirely. If one is truly natural and innocently spontaneous, the unborn, the intrinsic, will appear. The key to realizing is not some method of practice, however helpful this may be, but letting go of everything which is not the unborn. This is the same as saying not attaching to anything. How do you attach to the unborn? This involves no special method as typically understood. It involves the total openness of, of one who has no presumed goal, intention, desire, or wish. In other words, let go of wanting altogether. One thing doesn't work, does it Actually, I asked a couple of weeks ago. I went to uh, the school Miyaho teachers. I was invited to talk about Buddhism and this was a fascinating uh, discussion for engaged kids and, uh, and one of them asked about uh, how does Buddhism see or, or relates to uh, Achievements or money or stuff, right? I said, wisdom doesn't really have any opinion about that, but it's asking you to examine your relationship with those things. What do you want out of the things that you have or the things that you would like to have later on? What do you expect that that will give you? That's the question. Are you using those things freely, or are you putting expectations that are never going to be matched? And then I asked this person about, you know, I asked her to say whether or not she finds things satisfying. And she she thought about it, she said, well, if I watch a movie and it's satisfying for a little bit, but then it's over and I'm back to the same place it was very clear actually and she said a couple other things and she said no it doesn't work she said clearly it doesn't work because nothing essentially eventually nothing will work that's the good news (laughs) nothing always works doesn't it so no no presumed goal, no intention, no desire, no wish. Allow nothing to work freely in your life. It means be nothing. Align yourself with nothing. That's why O said, the founder of Aikido said, unless you have linked yourself with true happiness, search true happiness, yes, that's the second, with true emptiness, you will never understand the the art of peace, Aikido. Unless you have linked yourself, unless you have aligned with nothingness, you're wasting your time on the mat doing techniques. That's all it is, techniques. When you align yourself with nothingness, emptiness, then you are flowing. Then happiness, contentment, it's not in question. So no presumed goal, intention, desire or wish. Isn't that a great relief? To realize that there is no need to be anyone else. Go anywhere else. Or know anything else. There's no need to add anything to this. Already, from the beginning, all beings are Buddha. From the beginning, all beings are. You can even leave the Buddha aside. From the beginning. From. Now drop that too, because it's just a bunch of words. Remember Vimalakirti's gate of non duality, right? He didn't do anything or say anything. That was his answer. What a relief it is. It relaxes the body. It calms down the agitation. And when the agitation is subdued, the energy naturally shifts to the intrinsic. It allows it to function freely. And flow without stopping. Even for a brief second. And then when a person is enlightened. Both the person and enlightenment. Disappear. It was needed. Until then. It's no longer needed. Then it becomes an extra thumb. As the verse says. There's not dialogue that. Kind of sounds like the same as the, the one he's calling. The national teacher once asked a monk, What does Buddha mean? The monk said, It means enlightenment or enlightened. The teacher asked, Has the Buddha ever been deluded? The monk said, No, never deluded. The teacher said, Then what's the use of enlightenment? You know, the national teacher and Yangshan are not negating the, the magnanimity of realization of Kensho or the transformative effect it has on our everyday life or the way we function. And they're not opposing the, the Buddha who said that this is a very, very long path. And it will, it does require the cultivation of patience, perseverance, discipline, awareness, relentless determination and deep trust. They're not saying on the way along the path you're not going to fall down millions of millions of times. Fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, get encouraged, get discouraged. That's all a part of it. So they're not saying, you're good to go. You're a Buddha. Now, go ahead. Keep living as if you're not. You're a Buddha. Now go ahead, realize it. Go ahead and realize it. Go ahead and actualize it great and actualize it. And realization will happen naturally. Right? And that's the expectation of anyone who is a part of a community of practitioners. Live like a Buddha. Because you are. Because if I think that I will become enlightened later, what do I do meanwhile? I give myself permission to act as if I'm not, as if deluded. You know, what they're saying is that the cultivation of these important traits, like discipline, awareness, determination, trust, patience, are not for the sake of reaching enlightenment. It is needed so we don't fall into the secondary. So we don't create something else. So we don't fall into what we create. As Yangshan says, it's not that there is no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? And by way of negation, he's saying, yes, there is enlightenment. But since it's inherent, why are you concerned about that? It's inherent. There's no question about this. So then the focus should be directed to the many ways we desecrate our fundamental nature. That's the work. Not am I pure? Am I whatever? Why am I going against it. Why do I act as if I'm not? That's the flipping. And it's drastic. Obviously, because it's not the way we see. Actually, it's not the way we see anything, right? Because we see our lives as this and then this and then this and then this. If I do this, I'm going to get there. If I do that, I'm going to get there. Achieve this, achieve that. So of course we will do the same with practice. Which in a way can keep the mind agitated. So how do we desecrate our fundamental nature? And that means turning the light inwardly, right? To shine on how we do it. To, first of all, acknowledge. If I, if my mind, if I'm engaged in thoughts that are chopping reality, right, that that are creating divisions, that are separating, of course I'm going to do that with others, with the world. It'll, It'll affect the way I see the world, the way I interact with the world. If, I have, if my mind is judgmental about me, I am going to be judgmental about others. Because it's one and the same. And if my mind is agitated, I will perpetuate agitation in the world. If there is anger, unobserved anger, then, yeah, that's what I'm going to share with the world. So we have to observe. We have to look at this anxiousness, underlying anxiousness, this ease in the background. Why? What is preventing us, you, me, from being at ease? Why are we not at ease? And besides, you know, you know the saying, searching for alignment is like mounting a donkey to go look for a donkey. Right? In other words, don't bother. Waste of time. Bother, but don't bother with that. Practice, but practice how you desecrate. Look at that. Practice looking at how you desecrate. Practice raising strong determination to maintain the practice alive keep coming back work on discipline that's what Dogen said in Fukanza Zengi the way is basically perfect all pervading how could it be contingent upon practice and realization and yet if there is the slightest discrepancy the way is as distant as heaven from earth if there is slightest discrepancy Then enlightenment is over there, very far, heaven and earth. If the least like or dislike arises, he said, the mind is lost in confusion. And about this koan today, Shishin Roshi said, if you say you're not enlightened, you've fallen into the second level. Because you deny the Buddha's teaching. Is there a first level? If you say there is, you fall into the second one. And if you avoid the question entirely, you also fall. And this is actually great fuel for practice. the verse says, The secondary distinguishing enlightenment breaking up delusion. Quickly should free your hands and relinquish net and traps. In the Book of Changes, the I Ching, it says, A trap is how to get a rabbit. When the rabbit is caught, the the trap is forgotten. a, A net is a way to get a fish. When the fish is caught, the net is forgotten. So words are a trap for images. Images are nets for ideas. Those who keep the words are not those who get the image. Those who keep the image are not those who get the idea. In other words, those who keep anything don't get anything. Well, those who keep something are trapped by what they keep. Right? And it's very easy to get trapped by being deluded by being on the path of realization, or by realization itself. Being trapped with the hunger for realization. I want it. Here is the problem. I want. Why? Poverty mind. Poverty mind. You know, our tendency is actually to, to weave nets, climb right into them, and get trapped by our own creation. So, if there's one useful advice we can take to go with us, is dwell nowhere, keep nothing, again and again and again. The commentary says, even if you have marvelous enlightenment, you should spit it out right away. And any teacher will tell you that. Actually, if you say (laughs) you have it, that's already saying everything. Same way if you say you don't have it. I'm deluded. How do you know? I'm enlightened. How do you know? To know you are deluded is to create a gap, to create duality. to know, to think you know you're enlightened is to create a gap. It doesn't work. because we get trapped, or actually we fall into that gap. Accomplishment before it's exhausted, becomes an extra thumb. Wisdom can hardly know, like you cannot bite your own navel. Have you tried? Give it a shot. You'll get as frustrated as if you're looking for enlightenment. You know, the the efforts to attain wisdom and wisdom itself are both considered the secondary level. And both can be traps. Wisdom does not know wisdom in the same way that Buddhas do not know that they are Buddhas. Of course, extra thumb, right? Who needs another one, right? It works as is. The hand is designed very well. Unless we come up with a new technological thing that has another six fingers, maybe better. (laughs) That's possible. Maybe Apple is working on that. It says, in the commentary, it says, where knowledge doesn't reach, wisdom cannot know. Right? And we want to know by way of knowing. And when we try to know by way of knowing, we get trapped. Because knowledge doesn't know itself. Wisdom does not know itself. The full moon icy disk weeps in the autumn dew. The birds are cold in the jade tree. They don't Breeze is chill. Brought forth, great young distinguishes real and false, completely without flaw. The white jade is esteemed. And the footnote says just don't latch onto it. I just, yeah, all of it. Latch on to none of it. Hold on to none of it. Which is basically saying yes, there are those experiences walk through them experience them just don't hold on to any thought any opinion any emotion any memory otherwise how else can we experience freedom right we cover up what we want to find and we encounter what we use to cover up with and we get discouraged for sure. Now he says here the birds are cold in the jade tree, the dawn breeze is chill, and the moon icy, this grips in the autumn dew. It's often you will find references in, in Zen to it's cold, it's frozen, it's icy, and it's referring to a state of equanimity, the unborn. If it's unborn, then yeah, it's one with all things. There are no gaps. There are no separations. And the question is, how does this come to life? So that just don't latch onto it. Yes, there is. Right? He's, he's saying I'm not saying there's no enlightenment. But how do you not get trapped? There is one there's only one it's how it appears right that's how we get trapped so yeah it's all one but how do we not get trapped in the many ways the one appears that's the question that's the practice What to finish with? There's a couple of choices I have. <laughs> Banki, which I quoted before, he says, the unborn Buddha mind deals freely and spontaneously with anything that presents itself to it. But if something should happen to make you change the Buddha mind into thought, then you run into trouble and lose that freedom. To change the Buddha mind into thought. In other words, to separate, to create a gap. And he says, let me give you an example. Suppose a woman is engaged in sewing something. A friend enters the room and begins speaking with her. As long as she listens to her friend and sews in the unborn, in the state of the animal, she has no trouble doing both. But if she gives her attention to her friend's words, and to the friend's words, one second, and thought arises in her mind as she thinks about what to reply to a friend, her hand stops sewing. If she turns her attention to her sewing and thinks about that. She fails to catch anything her friend is saying and the conversation doesn't go anywhere. In either case, the Buddha mind has slipped from the place of the unborn. She has transformed it into a thought. As her thoughts fix upon one thing, they are blank to all others, depriving her mind of its freedom. Because the Buddha mind, the unborn, the original is all-encompassing. at once is all-encompassing. But if we don't trust it, if we don't dwell in that, which is dwelling nowhere, if we don't trust it and allow it to function, and then we get caught up in one thought, actually, one thought, then it all falls apart as an experience. It never does fall apart, but it all falls apart in experience. We are detached, removed at that moment, from our original self. So again, one thought. The beginning and the end. So again, do we need, do people these days need enlightenment or not? How would you answer such a question?